Advent starts for, for, it's for four weekends. So this is the beginning of Advent. And Advent is a word that just means coming, the coming of, of Jesus. It's a time for us to prepare ourselves to receive Christ. And so we are leaning in to the Advent season this year. And they mentioned the Advent devotional. And I want you to know the Advent devotional was written by 20, 15 different people in our church wrote entries. Someone over there. Uh, uh, it, a bunch of people in our church wrote entries for the devotional. So you'll be reading, essentially, what other people in our church have written as the devotional for the day. And they're very short. They're very easy to do. It's a really nice time for you to kind of center yourself and focus on preparing yourself for the coming of Christ. And so it's an easy win. Pick one up on the way out. If you're at home, I'm offering personal delivery. If you want, would like one this week, Put it in the comments. Send us an email to the office. We will bring one to your house and drop it off to you. Uh, we want to make sure that everybody gets the physical thing in their hands so they can actually uh, you know, do something that is not digital. Okay? We want you to do something that is not digital during Advent. So we want to put that in your hands, and if you need one at home, we'll drop one off to you, or we'll set up a time for you to be able to grab it or whatever. We'll work it out with you. So I want to make sure that on your way out, we'll be handing those out. If you're at home, we'd like to get them in your hands as well. Okay, I think that was all I needed to say before this. So, let me uh, just pray real quick, center myself and us, and let's hear from God's word. God, would you use your word this morning to change how the, the way that we think and the way that we live? Would it make a difference in us? Would we find hope in your word, hope in who you are, hope in who we are as a community, um, that we would find hope in the gospel ultimately? God, would you allow that hope to be infectious in us, in your name, so uh, we are in a weird time, our family, because we are packing to move, and we've had many years now in our home, and as anyone knows, you accumulate things. I feel like that maybe this is not the case for everyone else, but I feel like in my house, only things come in. That's it. That's the end of the conversation. Things come in, and they keep coming in, and they continue to come in. Every birthday for a kid, more stuff comes in. Every Holiday, more stuff comes in. Every time there's a scrap of paper on the ground outside, we pick it up and we just leave it in our house. That's what it feels like sometimes that a house is just full of things, and the longer you live there, the more you accumulate. So, we've been having some fun uh, getting rid of things, purging things. In fact, you'll probably see me in a flurry of Facebook posts over the next couple weeks giving away all kinds of cool things. So, if you don't follow me, by the way, my social media like, policy is never to ask anyone to be my friend. Uh, because I feel like sometimes people don't want their pastor to follow them on social media. Um, so, but I will always say yes. So if you want to be my friend, you just request me, and then I'll say yes, and then you'll be able to see all the free things that we're giving away for the next however many weeks. But we're getting ourselves ready. We're purging. We're preparing for this huge event to move everything we own into a house that's twice the size of the one that we live in. So it feels kind of counterintuitive, Right? But I think we're taking this opportunity to get ourselves ready, to move as little as possible, to keep as little clutter as we possibly can, to make sure that all the things that we want are the things that we want, and all the things that we don't want are out, are gone, or disappear from our world, um, to kind of simplify things. And I feel like Advent is a little bit like this, right? Sometimes we feel like we can just flip a switch, and we can just be spiritual, right? We can just flip a switch, and now we're ready to receive Christ into our lives. Now we're ready to celebrate Christmas, but I think this is kind of like a process where we are preparing ourselves for a few weeks before we can really celebrate and worship at Christmas time. 
And it's a little bit almost like there are different kinds of people when it comes to like Christmas music, right? Okay, so if you're an all-year Christmas music person, let's see a hand. All right, like three of you. Okay, good for you. If you're a it-can't-start-until-Halloween Christmas music person, okay, just me. All right, uh, if you're an after-Thanksgiving Christmas music person, all right, majority of you, all right, but, but there's different... There's different kinds of philosophies on this, okay? And I'm sure that those of you who live with a Christmas music all year round person, um, you are annoyed by the intensity of your person that you live with, your roommate or partner, your you know wife or husband, whoever it is that you live with. Uh, or if you're one of those people that wants to wait till the very last second and people are trying to force it on you, that can be a problem. But I feel like Advent is a little bit like that as well. There's people coming at different paces trying to focus themselves, and some of us are quickly focused easily on whatever is shiny in front of us, and other people are slow. They're like a crock pot, and some of us are like uh, deep fried, okay? So I'm a deep fried kind of person. I could stop and focus on something else and worship, but some of us need the season, all right? So that's what we're going to be focused on for the next couple weeks, and today we're talking about hope, and I feel like as we start to talk about hope, I mean... I generally do a sermon on hope almost every Christmas season because it's one of those themes, one of those Advent themes, and one of those things that we talk about. And I feel like I'm already um, hoped out on my sermons. Like, I feel like all of my sermons have to do with hope. So I started this week just asking for God to give me something fresh. Just like, hey, God, I've spoken on hope like five years in a row. You know, even as a, you know, three, three years here, but also as a youth pastor, I just feel like hope is this message that I've talked about and talked about and talked about. And actually, my, my sermon from last year on hope was killer. And nobody heard it because everybody was at home not online with us when we did the sermon. Yes, I'm talking to you. Feel free to go back and listen to it on the same passage. It's amazing how different these two sermons will be. But I, I just kind of felt like, God, give me something fresh. And I feel like today I received something fresh, something different. So I want to talk about hope from a different perspective, all right? Yes, if you find yourself in a dark time, there's going to be a conversation here for you, something to encourage you, right? If you find yourself in the depth of despair, if you find yourself uh, dealing with a really difficult moment, a terrible, you know, situation with a family member, or a really deep kind of wound that you've been working on, or like a, a seasonal problem that you have where, you know, the sun goes away and relationships get hard and things are difficult... Yes, there's going to be a conversation here for you, but I actually want to talk about hope from a different perspective uh, this morning, okay? So I'm going to start here in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 1, and uh, I want to just give you a little bit of context. The prophet Isaiah is one of those prophets that generally the, the way that Israel worked during the, that time frame was that they would sort of have this relationship with God where they would drift away from God and then they would have a prophet who would come and would prophesy and would, you know, kind of call them to repentance and then they would drift closer to God and then things would be good for a while, for a generation or two, and then they would drift again. And a lot of times it had to do with their kings. Their kings were bad, their kings were good, their kings were generally all over the place and they were kind of all over the place. So these prophets stepped into the the place between kind of God and the people, and they were able to preach repentance or prophesy, give the people what they needed in the season that they were in. Um, And so Isaiah is speaking to Israel at this point, 
And the northern part of Israel has been conquered and the people have been dragged away. Right? So the southern part of Israel is looking at the northern part and thinking, this could be our fate. They're, they're dealing with lots of anxiety. Every day they're wondering, is there an army coming over the hill that's going to conquer us and drag us away? Right? They're, they're thinking every day about where they're at, and that anxiety is, is really building. And so Isaiah comes and he prophesies about hope to people who are dealing with that sort of everyday anxiety. Okay? So this is where we find ourselves. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. He says, Nevertheless, since there will be no more sorry, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress in the past. He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So in Isaiah's day, the northern area of Jerusalem, which I said was conquered, was Zebulun and Naphtali. And actually, Galilee is also the region. So the whole entire area that he's talking about is the area that was, was conquered and the people were dragged away and they were made slaves. And this was a terrible moment for this entire region. But Isaiah is prophesying that this won't be the end of the story. And so he's saying, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Zebulun and Naphtali was uh, a parsley inhabited area at this point. Some Jews and then a lot of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were kind of living in the area from which the people were conquered and taken away. And so this was kind of a sparsely populated area. It was kind of like in the country north of Jerusalem. This was sort of a podunk kind of area at this point, and these people were sort of like the country bumpkins of Israel, okay? So they were just kind of up there sustaining themselves, but not a lot of people, partially populated, uh, you know, sort of a country kind of feel to it. It was kind of out of the major hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, uh, and it was the area, again, that was, that was having all the, that had the real issues in the past. It was honestly like if we were going to say, okay, what's the, the Twin Cities version of this? Maybe it's like Cambridge, okay? Those of you from Cambridge, I'm sorry. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat on Cambridge a little bit here. But, you know, just like country, like not really important, doesn't have tons of influence, um, <laughs> for those of you from Cambridge, like, you don't even know. It's like an hour away. Like, who wants to go there, right? No, Okay. And anybody, anybody, yeah. No, it wasn't as low as Wisconsin, okay? <laughs> Cambridge is definitely above Wisconsin and Iowa for sure. Um, but the question is, God right here is saying, hey, this terrible thing has happened here, but I'm going to restart something new in this, in this region. And somebody listening to this would say, why? Why would you ever start something new in this area? Why would anybody ever want to start a movement Cambridge. But this is what God does. You know, this area, not only was it partly Jewish, but mostly Gentile, he calls it Gentile, or he calls it um, Galilee of the nations, which essentially is saying the people that live there are people from all over the world who have come and kind of landed and parked themselves on a place that has gone through incredible distress, that they're basically now squatting on free land that was left because of the distress of the people that were they were put through that kind of the, the difficulty that they had been through. And God is basically saying to the entire world through the prophet Isaiah that Galilee, 
Zebulon, Nephthali, is going to be this place where something is rebirthed. That yes, it went through this distressing time, and it went through this time of humility and really being humbled down to the, you know, being conquered. But in the future, that honor will come from this place. And the people of that day would have been like, there's no honor that's going to come out of this. Like, we are fearing every day that our, you know, plight will be the same as theirs. And what's happened to them, it doesn't say anything powerful about God. There's no story about how God saved his people in that moment. No, they were conquered and they were carried away as slaves. So there is kind of this weird thing where Isaiah is basically saying, hey, God's going to do something from the ashes of this difficult moment for this area and these people. And you can kind of understand that this, this, this mentality doesn't necessarily go away. When Jesus begins his ministry and he's you know, uh, being kind of found by the first apostles and disciples, right? You know, Peter, James, John, Nathaniel, Philip, these guys are sort of finding him. You know, he's uh, presented to Nathaniel as uh, coming from Galilee. And Nathaniel's famous uh, quote there is, what good could come from Nazareth in the area of Galilee, in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali? I mean, even in the future, as things are, you know, completely different thousands of years later, and the Jews have kind of resettled now and things are a lot different, even people then would look at it and go, what good could come from that podunk country area that's been conquered in its past, that has all this baggage and all this history and all this stuff? And I want to say that God, when he creates stuff, he uses weakness, always. He uses weakness to win, to start new things, to birth brand new things. It's in weakness that he is the one who, who wins. And Jesus, you know, he's not the kind of savior who comes as a conquering king. He takes his own medicine. When he sees us suffering, he himself also lives a life where he suffers, where he goes through betrayal, where he deals with difficulty, where he ultimately gives up his life in suffering in order to win. That there's a, a something that comes out of the ashes of pain, out of the ashes of turmoil, out of the ashes of you know, of this difficulty that will change everything. Jesus won through his weakness. He conquered through his humility. And Isaiah is declaring his message that this will begin in weakness, that his next plan, his next part of his plan will begin from an area of weakness or from an area of humility. What good could come from Galilee anyways? And it's almost like Isaiah is saying, just like challenge accepted. Like just watch God work. Watch what he does. I thank God that's the case because he builds beautiful things from the ashes of our destructive lives. We come to him in weakness. When we come to him and we say, God, we're broken. We've sinned in our lives. We're destroyed. Things aren't right. We don't know where our hope is coming from. We, we're, we're lost. We've been through the ringer. He goes, great, perfect. I build beautiful things from the ashes of brokenness. I'm going to show everybody what I'm going to do in Zebulon and Naphtali and Galilee. I'm going to show everybody what I'm going to do through a Savior who gives himself up, who you know, lives a humble life and gives himself up and wins through weakness and pain and suffering. And I'm going to do the same thing in your life. I'm going to pick up the ashes of what you bring to the, to the altar and I'm going to turn it into something that's meaningful, something that's beautiful. Right? The, the prophet here is giving hope to people who are afraid we're living in anxiety, but he's also communicating to us thousands of years later 
that there is a, a historical moment here for him to talk to his people, but don't think for a second that God's not talking to us through all of these prophecies that we find in the past. That there's a, a, something for us to pick up the pieces here and understand who God is and to, and to picture ourselves in this situation. Look at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And so, I, you know, it's one of these crazy things where, okay, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, but those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. What, what is he talking about? There's two different kinds of darkness that he's talking about here. Like, what is, what is the difference between these two darknesses? And the one he just basically says, the, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. He's just talking about generally the state of our lives when we come to Christ in our brokenness. That if we have seen this light around us and the people around us in the church that we're a part of, in the world that we know, like if we've seen God's light anywhere, that we bring our brokenness and then he redeems what we bring to him and allows that light to be part of our lives. But there's this other thing here that he's talking about. For on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned, almost as if he's comparing the southern part of Israel to the northern part of Israel. There's a different kind of brokenness there. People living in deep darkness. And the way that translates, the way that word translates deep darkness, it's almost like he, he, he does a... Oh, man, I don't know my English very well. He, he puts two words together. Is that a... Con, con, yeah, not a... Comp, it's not put... It's two words that go together. This is, what, this is where we're going here. And he calls it... It's almost like it, if we were to translate it, it would be like the words death shadow. Like people living in the death shadow or the shadow of death. We've seen that language before in the Psalms and what David talks about. And he says, it's almost like he's saying a light will flash for those living in the death shadow. It's almost how that translates. And I want you to know, like as far away as you can get from, from God, there is always an opportunity for that redemption to come. Sometimes we feel like we're too far. Sometimes we feel like we're in that death shadow, in that deep darkness. Some of us have actually lived in that death shadow with loved ones, you know, even in our own health struggles. We've been in those moments. We've struggled where death is right there in front of us. It's coming. It's like something that's part of our everyday life that we're processing on the, on, all the time. But there's, there's a group of people or a, a group that is so far away from God that that light is going to break through and reach even them. It's almost like he's saying, and this, remember this is right after he talked about Galilee of the Gentiles, that there's a whole other group of people that will be brought in who are so far away from God that they don't even have him on their radar. This is still God's plan. It's still God's plan to reach not only the people who are easy to reach, but the people who are far away and in a deeper kind of darkness, living in a death shadow and the thing is, light always equals life. Like, think about our world, okay? If the sun began to, or just disappeared tomorrow, um, I did a little bit of really bad internet research, so you can check me later if you want. So, by the end of the day, if there's no sun today or tomorrow, it would be zero degrees, okay? If I'm living in complete darkness, zero degrees. By uh, the end of, like, a few days, a week, I think, maybe, maybe a month, I'm not sure, but it was negative 100. They said that the, the temperature would settle somewhere around negative 400 degrees over a year, given no sun. Photosynthesis would completely stop. 
Okay, that's a problem for us. Can't breathe without it, right? It would be a very short time before this dystopian future of being completely in the dark, having very little to breathe, having almost nothing to eat, and being negative 400 degrees. Now, if there was somebody, you know, with a bunker somewhere, I hope, do you guys all have a person like that? Like, in the case of zombies, you know whose house to go to? Or what person that you're going to meet in the middle of uh, Nevada desert or something? And I use that word because my guy's going to go to Nevada. So, and some of you guys know who that person is. Um, Listen, without sun, without photosynthesis, without air, without any warmth, we would be quickly dead. The sun is life for us on this planet. And in this case, light is life. Everything around us is breaking down. Our world experiences entropy, loss of energy, which creates us breaking down. You are breaking down. Believe it or not, your life is coming to a close little by little every single day, and you're not going in the other direction. Now, you can add energy in, and you can get some good, some good outcomes, but eventually, it gets you. I'm 41. I feel like it's getting me. 39 was great. 41, terrible. Okay? But we're all living in this sort of like the sun is sort of setting in our world and in our lives, and it will come for us. I mean, until heaven, everything breaks, and once heaven comes, nothing, nothing breaks. Nothing breaks down. No pain, no disease, nothing. It's almost as if this world is a picture of what things can be, and eternity is the reality of what things really should be. That like the stuff that we deal with wasn't things that they were dealing with in the garden before sin. It was this relationship with God. Think about creation, right? God says, the first thing he says is, let there be light. And then he creates the sun a couple days later. What's the light? Where does that light come from, right? And in in eternity, the book of Revelation tells us this. It's talking about the, the eternal city, right? The, eternal, the new Jerusalem. It says, The city does not need sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The life, the life that we're looking for, is found in Christ. Like the sun in our world is a picture of what Jesus is to us in the spiritual realm. Without the sun, we die. Without the light that, that is given to us through Jesus, we die. We slowly die. We move towards death. Right? But, but that's not the end of the story. Because people that were living in darkness, a light has shown. Those who are living in deep darkness or the death shadow, a light has flashed and begins to draw them in. And even though everything is breaking down in our world, this is a picture of what it could be. And, and heaven is a picture of what it, what it should be. The source of light in our life has to come from the, the Lamb. Look what he says. He says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. What is he talking about? Right? You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy? That has not happened. People have been killed and murdered and sort of dragged away and become slaves to another empire. He says, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. 
the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And what is Isaiah saying? He's saying that ultimately this kingdom that God is going to create, this movement that's going to happen when this light shines and shows itself, when it, this life comes into people's lives, it will be the end of the struggle, the end of the fight. We won't need to struggle anymore. We'll be able to burn all the weapons and all the garments that were used you know, for, for battle, and we'll be able to break the, the yoke on our shoulders, that burden, the bar across our shoulders, the yoke that's on us, the rod of the oppressor. These things will all go away. They'll all be broken because freedom will come for those who receive the light that comes in that darkness. That ultimately, Isaiah is telling people who feel like they're in the captivity of anxiety that freedom is part of their story in the future. That they don't have to live in this anxiety every day. That there is something else coming. That ultimately, the struggle will go away. That it'll be a clear victory. The spoils of war will be theirs. The harvest will be something they can focus on. Again, that freedom will come and they can burn the weapons and burn the garments and burn the boots and get rid of all of it because there is no more struggle because the victory has been won. He's not talking about the north part of Israel. He's not talking about Zebulon and Naphtali. He's not talking about the southern kingdom. Right? He's talking about the struggle that we have in our lives and the victory that comes through knowing Christ and allowing his light to invade our lives. This is why when Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest in your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And yes, he's talking about a farming analogy there, but he's also referencing that yoke that's been broken because this light has come into the world and has offered us victory. We don't have to deal with the entropy or the battle anymore that we, in humility, sacrifice ourselves and give away who we are and receive who Christ wants us to be, that we embody the light now for the rest of the world to see. That hope is based in freedom. And, and, and I know that's true. Because often the people with the least amount of hope, their world is not based in freedom. Their world is based in bondage. Those of us who find ourselves in bondage to the sin in our lives are the ones that have the least amount of hope. Those ones who find us in bondage to the anxiety of this world, in bondage to the death that's right in front of us, in bondage to these things, we find ourselves with very little hope left to deal with the world around us. Hope is based in freedom. And where does that freedom come from? Look what he says. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Not, not the yoke on your shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It, by the way, all four of these uh, names, if you think about them for a second, who could be the wonderful counselor or the mighty God or the everlasting father? He's called a father and he's called a son. In this, There's only one, one person this can be. It can only be a reference to God. We, you know, historians want to try to make this a reference to a, like a, a, a king of some sort or like a, a human king. 
And some people have even thrown out some ideas of who this could be, but there is no one who could be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, or a prince of peace, and specifically couldn't be that for Jews. You couldn't call someone mighty God and father and son, and it would, it would, not, make, would not make any sense. And he says, of his greatness, sorry, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is not a temporary reign. It's a permanent one. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. So I just want to focus on hope for a second. And, you know, we did a whole sermon series on those four names alone, I think two years ago. Go back and listen to it if you, if you like. It's pretty incredible, those, those four names, what they mean. Hope here, what we're talking about, I want to first start with the idea that hope is communal. This is kind of an aha for me because often we think of hope as just being, I need hope in this moment. I feel like I have no hope in this area, but I want you to know that hope is communal, that there is a larger narrative that connects us and we find hope in the stories and in the lives of other people that we're in community with. If you're looking for hope, and you're looking into yourself to find it, you can't stop now. It doesn't come from here. And it doesn't even come in our individual relationship with Jesus as much as we think. Yes, that there's hope there in Christ and in our relationship. But I think in our world, we have individualized our faith to a point where we think everything we need can come through a personal relationship with Jesus, and we miss the idea that there's a communal element to hope. This is one of the insidious things that we've dealt with over the last year or two in the middle of an endemic. I'm not going to call it a pandemic anymore. It's an endemic. Go, go research the difference between those two words. It pulled us apart. Hope was lost because we lost connection. Right? Hope was lost because we weren't together. Hope was lost because we weren't sharing stories with each other about what God's doing in our lives because we weren't encouraging one another, because we weren't allowing those testimonies to be shared together as a, as a group. That hope is very, very communal. And for the Jews, it was very communal. They lived together, they worshipped together. It was a, a tribe of people who were worshipping God together. But yes, they had an individual uh, personality and identity, but also their personality and identity was wrapped up into the community of people that they were a part of. If you find yourself lacking hope, a lot of times the answer for you is to lean into community with other believers and, like we said with with boldness, to borrow some from the community. It also means that when God is doing incredible things in our lives, we have to share those stories with people. And we have to do it in a way that encourages them, not in a way that's like bragging, hey, look what's going on in my life. Yeah, yeah. No, hey, God can do this for you too. And you know what? I'm here until that happens. And I'm with you. Hope is a lot about presence. Right? We have that individual hope through the presence of God in our lives, through the relationship that we have, but also when we show up for other people, we're providing hope. When we are there with them as they're walking through the difficult moments, we're providing hope. Hope is very communal. There's a thing here uh, that gets lost in our individualistic society. Our society says it's all about you. It's all about you. 
Get exactly what you want. Do exactly what you want. Make sure that you customize everything in your world to be exactly for you. Let's, let's create an online profile in a metaverse. Guys, this is coming. What a ridiculous. This is going to be the end of society as we know it, right? We thought TikTok was bad. No, some of you are older than that. We thought uh, MySpace was bad. Yeah. <laughs> what was the one that was like 12 seconds or something? Vine, we thought Vine was bad. Some of you are like, that's my jam. Um, okay, maybe not. But we, we, we are, our entire world tells us to be individualistic. It tells you to get what you want exactly the way you want it. And that, that's not a thing. It's not. The, the thing that the word tells us that God, you know, shows us that Jesus models for us is get in a community. Share your life with people around you and let them share theirs with you. You're looking for hope? Lean in to other people. Lean into small groups. Lean into serving. Lean into having relationships with people. Lean into coming in person when you can. Lean into being physically present for other people when they need you and when you need them. This is, this is what it says in Revelations uh, 12. Again, talking about heaven, the ultimate version of hope, right? It says, they triumphed over the enemy. This is like a huge crescendo in Revelation, right? Where there's this like battle between um, Satan and angels, and Satan gets tossed down into this, right? It's just crazy. And then it says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of of their testimony, and it could say by the power of their testimony or the, the powerful word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The way the enemy gets defeated in the end is that people say, I am much more about the community here than I am about myself. The word of my testimony is the thing that brought power into this moment and defeated the enemy. Are you kidding me? It says nothing about personal identity and my personal preferences. My personal preference would be to run away and save myself and to not share anything. But the thing that's powerful is when we open up and share our testimonies with each other and share the, the powerful word of testimony that's going on in our own lives with other people who need hope and we watch the enemy flee from that place. That's where the power comes from. It comes from this communal moment. And Isaiah is telling, yes, the Jews that, that, that God is going to redeem Zebulon and Naphtali and, and Galilee of the Gentiles. But he's also telling us that he's going to do that. And he's telling people that don't even exist yet that this is how God moves. That there's a communal piece to this. That it affects all of us who are reading this all through time. And by the way, if you're not in God's word, like, where do you think this hope comes from? It comes from his promises. And if you don't know his promises, you can't, you can't call on them or lean on them when you need them. Hope is, is communal. The second idea, hope is brightest in the darkest times. We've all been in a pitch black situation where it just needed just a little bit of light right, to illuminate the room, that our, our eyes were able to change and be able to deal with that darkness and just a little bit of light allows us to see way more than obviously we could with in the dark. Right? And a lot of light is something that takes us for a minute to like kind of like you know, transition ourselves to, right? 
hope is brightest in the darkest times. And I want you to know all these prophecies that we see in Scripture, they come in the darkest moments. Isaiah is prophetic after the northern kingdom is conquered and these people are dragged away. And he says, hey, this is not the end. More is coming. This is not the end. There's something to rely on later. Daniel prophesies from captivity in Babylon. Some of the most crazy prophecy that we see in the Old Testament comes out of Daniel, right, where they are literally living in captivity. And he's prophesying about the future when things are the darkest Hope is the brightest. John writes Revelation at a time when the church is in this incredible persecution and he is the last apostle left and he's prophesying from captivity where he's basically being jailed for his, for his faith and yet he writes this imagery of heaven to communicate to people that no matter what the difficulty is that you're going through, there's an end to it, that your life is dealing with entropy and it's going to end. But that eternity goes on forever, and it is perfect. The hope is the brightest in the darkest times, and when people are find themselves in the darkest times, that's when hope can just a little bit, just a little bit, can mean all the difference between being overcome by that anxiety in that, in that situation or being given enough hope to persevere. That we are never alone. That God says, I will be with you always over and over and over. It's one of Jesus' main message, one of the last things he says to his disciples, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you. That you're not alone. So hope is communal. Hope is brightest in the darkest times. Hope is not an instant solution. Um, I know this is the bummer part, right? It does not mean the promises of God are for tomorrow or are for you. That's a tough one. Or are in your lifetime. Isaiah prophesies this. Does anyone know how long it takes for Jesus to come onto the scene? It's not a decade. Around 700 years. 400 of those years are complete silence where God doesn't speak to any prophet or have any communication with his people at all. Things actually were about to get darker for the people of Israel before that light was going to shine in that deepest darkness. And this is a hard one because we, we want to flip a switch and we want God to fix the problem that's right in front of us. But Jesus doesn't flip a switch and avoid his suffering. Right? The hope that we have is sometimes for the future and it's not even for us. These Israel, these people, they live their lifetime not seeing that hope and generations and generations and generations not seeing that hope. 400 years of God not communicating with the people of Israel, not seeing the hope that was coming. And then, boom, in God's time, this light shines and comes into reality, and this prophecy becomes fulfilled. But sometimes as we struggle, we want to avoid the pain and the difficulty that we're going through, and yet God doesn't remove us from it. He provides his presence, and he provides his people, and there's a communal element of hope that comes into our lives that carries us through that, and we know it ends. Remember that thing about us dealing with entropy? It ends in a short time, comparatively, because eternity is forever. Right? That that struggle that we're dealing with, God doesn't remove us from it, and he doesn't make it go away often. And when he does do that, amazing. We tell the testimony and its power to the other people around us. Right? But we're not 
called to not struggle. We're called to struggle through the difficulties that we're dealing with and know that God someday does what he promises to do. Like, Take a look at Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, this is the very, very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he withdrew to Galilee. Where does he go? Zebulon and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles. It's almost like God's doing a thing here. It says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. He says, those living without hope, here it is. The person, the reign, the kingdom of Jesus is the thing that brings us hope. When we find ourselves in the deepest, darkest places, we realize the thing that changes the game for us is the hope of Jesus Christ, who comes into our life, picks up the ashes of what we bring to him and lay at his altar, and he turns it into something meaningful and beautiful, something to share with the community around you, something to to raise the spirits of everyone, to bring hope to people who are hopeless. This last idea about hope is that ultimately... It's the gospel. It's the gospel that is our hope. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He starts it in a land that had been humbled and destroyed and the people had been lost, and yet he births something absolutely beautiful in this moment, that he brings the gospel into existence in this place and begins a ministry that changes the lives of every single person in history. Look at the last verse, verse 17. From that time on, right? So it says, this is so that prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 9. And then it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. And here it is. Here's the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Ultimately, the gospel is the hope that we are looking for. Now, there's a lot to this gospel. First, it's the idea of repentance, which is saying, my life is in ashes. Give it my own way, it falls apart. I have tried and struggled to do it myself, and I have failed. It is a giving up, a moment of saying, no longer can I struggle through this world and see anything come good out of myself and my own struggle. It's me saying, enough. I know where this goes. And repenting. Repentance is this idea that we turn and go completely in the other direction. Often we want to say, my life is not working very well, God, I, I, and I need to give up, but I, I, I just want to do it on my terms. Hey, so I'm going to give up, but I also want to continue to do this or hold on to that, or I have, I have limits to how much I'm willing to say that, that I'm willing to give up. But repentance is this idea that I come to Jesus in one direction and say, I no longer want to go in the same direction, and I want to turn and go exactly in the opposite direction. I want to turn my life 180 degrees, not 360. I make that mistake all the time. That brings you back to where you started. And I want to go in the other direction. 
Right? If you have children, you understand this concept because they say, Dad, I'm sorry that I did such and such. But if they were being honest, they would say, Dad, I'm sorry that I did such and such, but I will again do it tomorrow. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying, my way doesn't work. My sin is screwing up my entire life. And I need to give up and let you be the one that takes control of this mess. That this is in ashes. That if I'm comparing myself to Israel, I've been dragged away by my sin. And my life lays in ruins. But thank God that's not the end. Repentance is the beginning of the gospel. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. (laughs) What does that mean? The kingdom of heaven has come near. Right? This idea that this eternity that's available to us, this, this heaven that's out there, right? That's eternal, that's perfect, where there's no, you know, there's no tears in heaven, there's no sin in heaven, and all these things that are tying me up and binding me here, these things don't exist there, and that I can welcome this kingdom, this peace of heaven into my life and start to live in freedom, as Isaiah would talk about, because of my relationship with Jesus. That Jesus comes near to me. I don't need to draw near to him. He draws near to me. And in fact, he's already close. Like those of us who are living in this world where we're kind of waiting for, you know, like all we have to do is allow God to come close. Or maybe all we have to do is wake up to the idea that he is close. And he's not in the direction that I'm going. He's just in the opposite direction. All I got to do is flip and turn and embrace what he's going to give me. That the kingdom of heaven draws near that heaven comes to earth, that heaven comes to my life, provides me with light, provides me with hope, allows me to go and change the world around me. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's exactly what Jesus is preaching, and that's where the hope comes from. But we don't live this way. We say, I love Jesus, and I I know I need community, but I'm going to go in the opposite direction from Jesus and community. And then we find ourselves living hopeless again, and in darkness again. But the beauty is all we have to do is turn and receive fresh again. So I want to pray for you to close this service. I just want you to find a prayerful position. And I want you to open your hands just to receive. And I just want to pray over you as your pastor that this gospel is the truest thing in your life. Jesus, would you take our brokenness and would you provide light? Would you provide community? Would you provide hope? We receive, we receive those things, Jesus. Make those places of repentance in our lives stick out like a sore thumb. That they just are so obvious to us. God, help us to go in the complete opposite direction. To lean into your kingdom, your light, your heaven, what you're building, your humility. God, we receive those things. As believers, we receive those things. Jesus, would you make those things the realest part of who we are? That we're not tied up in our individual identities our individual plans, our individual ways of living, God, would you allow us to be part of your community? Would 
you receive us? And God, I pray for those people who are living without hope, who are living with dim light, a very dark place. Would you just provide your gospel as a fresh, brand new way of living? That you receive us again and again and again. That as we sin and fall short, that you pick us up, you pick up the ashes of our lives, you make something beautiful. God, we receive. Receive your work in our lives. Would you draw us in especially over these next couple weeks, God, would you just prepare our hearts for the the importance of the coming of your your son? You brought him into the world in ashes, in a nowhere backwoods town with no fanfare, no gold on his head, no dignitaries there to visit him. You brought Jesus into the world in a place that was a nowhere with no one there. God, you take those ashes and you make beautiful things from them. Help us to live in the humility of that, the honesty of that. God, we pray that you would provide hope through this community. That our small groups would share their stories. That you would do something incredible in our lives. That ultimately what happens here, what happens in our small groups, what happens when we serve, spills out of this place and into the world where people are living in the death shadow. And would you draw them in? Thank you for being the lamp, for providing the light that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand? I want to send us with a benediction today. So, I pray that the Lord bless you and keep you. That he make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. That the Lord would turn his face toward you and give you peace during this season of Advent. It's in Jesus that we trust and hope in.